Welcome to the Self-Publishing School Podcast. This is the podcast to listen to if you're an aspiring writer or an author who wants to be more successful. On this show, you'll learn how to write and launch a book successfully, all from the top authors and people just like you who are doing it at the highest level. I'm your host, Chandler Volt, the founder of Self-Publishing School, the author of the book called Published, and the CEO of selfpublishing.com. For free training on how to publish a book that sells 10,000 copies, go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. Hey, Chandler Bolt here, and joining me today is Paul Scanlon. Uh, Paul is a speaker. He's a business success coach. Uh, he's the host of the podcast uh, called Growing Big People with P.S., uh, he's also the author of a book called I Am Not My Father uh, and the founder of the Guide Mastermind program. Uh, I'm really excited. He's got a, kind of a, a deep background as a speaker and a pastor uh, and a deep background in writing. So excited to talk about kind of weaving some of those things uh, together uh, today uh, in this interview. So, Paul, welcome. Great to have you here. Hi, Chandler. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I was looking on your website and... Uh, you you've got this book called I'm not your uh, I'm not my father. What was kind of the impetus behind that publishing that book, and how does that fit in with with what you're doing now, speaking and business wise? Yeah, I wrote the book because I wanted to um, do better on my watch than my father did on ours. My dad was violent, alcoholic. I was one of six kids, and he beat the hell out of us, um, you know, certainly weekly. I remember on Thursdays on payday was a triggering day for us all because he got paid in cash back then and went to the bar and spent what we, my mom obviously needed. And when he came home, we go to bed early Thursday nights so that we'd avoid a beating if we were seen. So that was my childhood. And I, I felt when I had kids and so on and grandkids, I wanted to, I had done better, I've done better, but I haven't spoken about why I wanted to or did better. So I wrote the book, I'm Not My Father, to kind of say, maybe you're not either. And even if you had a good dad, you're still not your father. Because we all have to parent in our own unique ways, given the cards life deals us and what version of us is parenting at any given time. And I think writing the book was good for me to um, put all that down in print, to go from head to hand. A lot of what I do and a lot of what your listeners and watchers do who are communicators will primarily be head to hand or head to mouth um, or both. My primary communication is going from my head to speaking. So going from head to hand was really good for me. It felt like journaling a therapeutic. And I've softened towards my dad, I think, through writing that. I, I'm sure my dad, I know my dad. I didn't know my granddad, his dad, that abused him. But it explains a lot of my dad's um, abuse and lack of being helped and so on and so on. And now what we're doing in this space, Chandler, you and I, uh, it is much more accessible to people now than it ever was in my dad's generation. I mean, where would people like my dad have gone for help? Mm. There was no such thing as mental health. It wasn't even a term, let alone going and getting help for that. And the help that maybe was available was brutal. 
mm-hmm. I'm, I'm primal, I'm basic. So I've softened towards my dad, and my dad's still alive. I don't see him. I haven't seen my dad for over 35 years, and he doesn't live far from me or my mum. And I worried about would he read the book, and people said to me, what if your dad reads it? And I thought, well, Mm -hmm. one, I don't think he will, and two, I don't know that I care because the book is kinder to him than I really should have been. Um, Mm. And if I wait too long, I won't write it. I'll get past the point of mm. it, something that matters to me. So all of that was wrapped up in writing the book, I'm Not My Father, because I think a lot of people need to have that mantra over their lives, especially if they're afraid of having kids because they feel, I'll be a bad father. Hmm. So the book has done great amongst especially you know, young men, like I was when I first had kids, that are terrified of history repeating itself. And history mm-hmm. group, History will always repeat itself unless there's mm-hmm. some resistance and some pushback to it doing so. Mm, that's good. And I'll, you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but I'd love to hear like, what was the toughest part of writing that book? And w- what would be your advice for folks? Because I feel like uh, in our world of publishing books, a lot of times when people are writing about tough life experiences, it's like, it's this, it's twofold. One, it's difficult to write it. It's almost like free therapy, like going through and actually writing the book itself. But then on the flip side, I think a lot of times people are worried about, hey, what if I put this out? And like you said, the people that I'm writing about see it. Should I use a pen name? Should I use, should I change names? You know, kind of stuff like that. How did you wrestle with that? And, um, and then how did, uh, um, what, what was kind of biggest lessons learned in the writing process? Well, I think obviously the stakes are higher, you know, if you are, Prince Harry writing about being the spare <laughs> and, and something liable may be involved. I think obviously mm-hmm. to be more careful. I am not at that level and most of probably our listeners and viewers aren't, but still there is uh, things to think about. I, I feel for me, uh, Chandler, that I knew I wasn't writing this book from an open wound and I don't think anybody should write or post or speak uh, from an open wound. We, we, don't, we don't want, as much as it's fascinating to watch, I don't think we want the Jerry Springer version of people's lives. I think we want more the Oprah version. <laughs> My point being, <laughs> we need to let a thing move beyond a wound to it becoming a healed scar, by which time this cry for help that a wound is has become an act of service to others. So I wrote the book, I feel, from a place of wanting to serve others, as I mentioned a moment ago. I think that makes anything we do safer. It makes it more balanced. It makes it kinder. It makes it softer. Even though the people we're writing about have been unkind and brutal to us, I think if you speak about it, write about it too soon, that's what we all feel. We feel the brutality and the pain you suffered but we, we're not sure how we're served by that. If you haven't yet made it something that serves your humanity and ours, what did you learn? Who did you become because of it? And so on. That's, I think, what we want to get out of the book, you know, or the talk or the post or the podcast or whatever. So I think I waited till that stage that made me mm. feel was safer to be written at that point. Mm, that's interesting. I, I, I wrote down the uh, the Jerry Springer versus the Oprah approach. Uh, to writing about tough life experiences. Yeah. What's what's the difference in your mind? And it sounds like one of the big things was, hey, I've, I've got to be 
kind of, uh, I've got to let some time pass so that I'm not writing from a raw, vindictive place. Like what, what are maybe some of the other um, differences that you see between how people can write between those, those two big point of views? Well, social media is full of people who are doing things for reaction, which was Jerry Springer kind of <laughs> culture. Yeah. I get it. It gets attention. It gets, um, in the TV show's case of Springer, it gets large viewing audience, so on and so on, because somehow we find some comfort in seeing people who are doing worse than us, or we frame it as that, or who are um, worse off than us, and we kind of feel we're doing better. I, I get it. And there is there's an attraction, there's a popularity in writing, speaking, posting, from reaction and pain, and a lot of reality shows are based around that kind of thing. I get it. But I think the older you get, if it's an age thing, the wiser you become. I think the more you're looking for things that are going to add value to your life, even though it comes from suffering in someone else's life. And I would say to anybody that is thinking of putting something out that is, you know, a book or a um, something written uh, or something that is a major expression of their life or a season of their life. Ask yourself, what is your end game? What is the takeaway for me listening to it? Ask yourself that. And if the if you're not sure about the answer, and you won't have one if it's reaction. Reaction doesn't mm. care about that. If you've gone beyond reaction, you'll have an answer to that that's thought through. You want you'll want to help me lift my game in the mm -hmm. end. You want me to avoid certain things that were blind spots for you. You want me to do better in my life than you did perhaps in your business, your bankruptcy, your divorce, your mm -hmm. tragedy, whatever. Then it's worth, you know, putting out there in the hope that someone will be helped by that. But I think if it hasn't mm -hmm. reached that stage, then it needs to be on the back burner a little bit longer, I think. I mean, there's millions of people paying no attention to that because we're in this clickbait generation. We want to grab attention and we don't really care why we have attention. We just want attention because we're living in an attention economy. Everybody wants a piece of your attention. And a quick way to get that is by being dramatic and sensational. But I don't know that it's pushing anything forward in the needle of our human flourishing. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And so you talked about getting clear on the end goal for the book. When, when we talk to authors about that, it's like, two, it's twofold. It's okay, what's the end goal for the reader that reads this book? And then what's the end goal for you as the author? I feel like you alluded to the end goal for the reader at the kind of at the start of this interview. On the flip side, what was the end goal uh, for you as the author for this book? Was this more of a of a passion thing of like, hey, I feel like this needs to be said. I want to put this out there. Did it relate to your business, your speaking, and what you're doing there? Like, how did you see that fitting in with everything? The the end goal for me is putting something out. Everything I do, Chandler, is the end goal for me is making people people feel seen. I want you to know that I know you. I see you. I am you. I have been you. Anything I put out, I want you to feel that when you engage with me. I have um, become good at that because years ago, I chose empathy as my means of communication. And empathy means I have to find something in me 
that relates to something that you are going through, even though I haven't been through the same thing exactly. Uh, and I determined years ago that I would become as fluent as I can in human, not in a topic or a subject, because someone's always going to teach a topic better than you are. But a lot of people teaching something better than you teach it aren't as fluent in human as you are. I mean, fluent in human means that you have baptized yourself into people, into suffering. And out of it, you become fluent in kindness. You become fluent in loneliness. You become fluent in suffering and setback and disappointment. And when you're fluent in those languages, you can connect to anybody anywhere in the world. People ask me all the time, how can you do what you do in multiple cultures? And I say, the culture is really irrelevant to a large degree. Because everybody in Indonesia, where I travel a lot, is fluent in those human conditions. And they are in America or Australia um, or Eastern Europe or whatever it may be. And I think what I've tried to do in my communication is to not get trapped into, I'm going to be brilliant in the content on this topic only. Mm. Not there. Uh, you need to know your stuff. But what matters, I think, to us that are listening and watching, increasingly the emerging generation are wired for this, isn't how good were you at saying it, but how good were you at seeing me as you said it, which is this, the holy grail of all communication. I teach this in my communication masterclass that I traveled around the world with for years. The holy grail of communication, I decided, wasn't content um, or technique or charisma. It's connection. Mm -hmm. Do you connect with those that are listening to you? And of course, there's a whole science around that too, but there's an art to it as well. But there's no mm -hmm. connection. There's no connection without empathy, unless you're fluent in empathy, which mm -hmm. comes by being in their shoes, not yours. Most speakers make the, make the fault of thinking, I need to work on speaking. You don't. You need to work <laughs> on You need to work on listening. <laughs> that's good and some of what you're talking about kind of reminds you of the the famous quote of uh, you know people don't know people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care exactly you talked about the the being fluent in empathy do you think that's a learnable skill set or do you think that's something that you're either born with it or you don't have it no it's completely learnable um yeah absolutely and it's a decision you have to make and you got to start small of course, coupled to this, there's a lot of work I've done in teaching around self-awareness, another massive human superpower. Empathy is a massive superpower for humans. Very few have it. Self-awareness is a huge superpower. Very few have it. So I'm saying that because the, the component parts of empathy are doing something today that's going to include, this will, the, the mechanics of it are something today will happen. You have to learn to pause, not react, not speak, not give an opinion, not correct order, just pause. And in that, in that habit of pausing, we allow something else to come up in us from our intuitive self instead of our left brain logic self, or more importantly, the ego. The ego doesn't have time for empathy. It is too threatened by you being empathetic because its whole status and false narrative about you is threatened if you show too much interest in someone else's suffering. 
So I think this pausing, I began to teach myself to pause, listen, especially with people who thought differently to me or who I would have framed historically as enemies or, or, or people I can't learn from. So this habit of pausing, allowing space internally for something else to come up. And the more you do that, the more you are slower to speak and slower to judge, and the more likely you are to think, wow, this person's really gone through something to react like that or to say that. And it can be something on a TV show or a movie. It doesn't need to be a physical interaction. So, yes, you can definitely train yourself um, and take yourself to empathy school every day. <laughs> I like that. Take yourself to empathy school. What? So I'm curious. You obviously led a church for, I, I want to say it was 30 years or so. 30 years, yeah. Yeah, a pretty a pretty massive church in the UK. Yeah. And and so you've obviously, I mean, that's a master class in connecting on a sure. human level. And and I, I once heard someone talk about uh T D Jake's speaking style and how his his genius was the ability to speak to the person in the front row as much as the person in the back of the church that just kind of snuck in at the last minute all socioeconomic classes and just like kind of to your point of of meeting people where they're at so i feel like that is a master class in itself what are some of the biggest lessons that you learned from that experience that parlay kind of into how you better communicate to your point both in the spoken i like what you said the 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 head i think you said like head to pen and head to, head to mouth like so both yeah. in the spoken word and in the written word yeah tdjx's genius isn't speaking at the front or back row that's what people experience it's empathy hey chandler bolt here i hope you're loving this episode so far it's time to go from inspiration to implementation all right so if you've learned something we want to help you implement what you've learned with your book so what I want you to do right now is go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a publishing consultation with one of the experts on my team. We'll talk about your goals for your book, your dreams, your challenges, your next steps, and we'll start putting together a plan. All right, so go to selfpublishing.com forward slash schedule, book a call with the team. Let's see how we can help with your book. It's time to implement Jake's makes you feel seen and other great speakers do that, which makes you feel whether you're at the front or the back, it makes no difference to him. I did decide many years ago to intentionally speak to the back row in the church world. People at the back historically often, and England, by the way, 90% of people in our country do not go to church and are quite anti-church, very unlike America and especially Bible Belt America where you are. So I felt someone coming to church was such a big countercultural thing to do in our country that it's my job to make them feel seen. Um, so I doubled down on all of the nuances forensically of why is it people don't go to church in our country? And the reason is often because they've been. And when they got, <laughs> it's, and when they got there, they didn't find this open-handed gesture I'm doing now for our listeners only. Um, whosoever will may come, this Bible verse we use a lot that Jesus said, they don't find the open arms. They find a wagging finger. And so they don't go back. So again, empathy allowed me to realize that, to be in their shoes as a non-church person looking at the outside in at ourselves. 
rather than me as an insider looking outwards from the religious bubble we were in. I don't agree to a degree, Chandler, I know what you mean, because this should be true that being a pastor is a masterclass in human connection. I wish that was true. The problem with the church world and with religion um, is that the culture is hijacked by a transactional energy. Anything you are doing that is driven by a transactional energy and idea is going to interrupt and mess with connection. In other words, if I'm on a platform trying to get you to join something, buy something, commit to something, show up at something, be part of something, support something, volunteer for something, if that's my agenda, almost everything I say is going to be infused with that, and it was until I woke up to realize that that's what's going on here. And it's a huge turnoff. You know, you know what it's like yourself when somebody tries to sell you something. Mm -hmm. um, we're more likely to buy a product if somebody convinces us how it adds value to our life mm -hmm. or how it solves a problem we have. This is why this is why entrepreneurs are brilliant. Entrepreneurs aren't trying to sell anything. They're trying to solve problems. Mm -hmm. So in the church, we were trying to sell things under the guise of solving problems that people didn't really have. Hmm. And so and so one of the things I, I did, you know, in the church fairly early on in my pastoring, though it was very unpopular and still is, I determined that I would stop speaking to Christians and start speaking to humans. Because what we had in the church, Chandler, and this is true in many, many churches around the world that I've traveled in and still do to a degree, is that we are people that were good Christians, but bad humans. And we'd settle <laughs> the church. We'd settle for that. You could be good in the church bubble, but then very unkind to people outside the church bubble. Couldn't get on with people, weren't kind, weren't generous, weren't forgiving, weren't open. Um, and when I started bussing people in from the worst parts of our city, which our church had never done, our church was white middle class, which was not the demographic of our city. When I started bussing in black people and people of color and bussing in people that had criminal backgrounds um, or bussing in people that were in the, you know, the red light prostitute area of our city or bussing in drug dealers or homeless people, all hell broke loose amongst the Christians. And I realized we had a problem. I realized I've been part of creating that problem, that we had a bubble we were in. And when I brought people in that burst that bubble or disrupted it, all hell broke loose. So I know what you mean by it should be a masterclass. It should be in human connection. It's not. It's a masterclass in connection with like-minded people. <laughs> it is a massive disconnection from people that think different to us who are who are our future, which is the mm -hmm. unchurched. Everything mm -hmm. we did should have been for them, not for those that were inside. And so when I began to do these things in the church, um, what happened was what I affectionately called the church mafia began to emerge in their resistance ta tactics against me changing the nature of our church to accommodate people that were different to us. And... We went into about two years of meltdown. People left, took their finances with them, 
and we were because we're donation dependent finances are controlling in the church people control with their money people mm-hmm. control with their family block bookings in the church and so on and so on so i agree with you it should be a masterclass in empathy it's not it's a masterclass in empathy with the people that pay the bills often and your friends in the church religious hierarchy system hmm let me ask you this on, on kind of on that subject do you obviously in that instance like the dynamic and the uh the demographic of your church changed and and not even just like in that specific instance but maybe more broadly outside of that like what, do you change the way that you're speaking to to cater it to the group that you're speaking to or is that and this could be speaking this could be writing or is that kind of do you say hey i've got my style and i've got the way that i deliver it and regardless of where I'm at and who's there, that's that delivery style. How do you look at that? Delivery style changes when you find your why. If you don't know your why, your delivery style will usually be some off-the-shelf thing you picked up from TD Jakes or whoever your your heroes are. So I've watched people for years try to bolt on bits of people they admire as speakers. And it looks like that. It's it's not right. authentic. Mm-hmm. It's not authentic until whatever you are doing in, in your delivery is connected and aligned with why you're talking in the first place. Mm-hmm. Why you're writing in the first place. So for me, my delivery became streamlined and much sharper when I figured out my why. My why became, I am here to wake you up and bring you back home to yourself. That's my why. Now, that is all therefore about empowering you, not me. It's about liberating your heart, not mine. It's about leaving you with a sense, as I said earlier, of feeling loved and seen and empowered and believed in. All of those are the ingredients of my why. Now, once I figure out my why is that, I'm not here to speak to... um, Religious people locked in a dogmatic transactional approach to life. I had done that when that was me. I was that too, till I woke up. So yes, my delivery style changed. When I started speaking to humans, my topics change. Nobody cares about Moses and the burning bush, apart from the religious people. So I began to approach communication from what are human issues, what are human needs, After that, I can go to Moses. That's fine. Because if I can find loneliness in the life of Moses, which I can, then suddenly Moses is interesting to everybody. But I can also find loneliness, you know, in the person that just came in off the street or the barista I spoke to yesterday at Starbucks. So I don't need Moses to teach that. Mm. But in church, if I don't use Moses or mention Jesus enough, they feel shortchanged. It wasn't the proper sermon. Hmm. So I realized that my delivery style changed when I found my why. My why isn't to tick the boxes of a sermon for the sermon connoisseurs. <laughs> my why is to make you feel loved and seen and maybe make you feel it's worth living another day or two because something better could happen if you can wake up and get better.
Mm-hmm. So yes, my topics changed, my delivery style changed, my vocabulary changed, and my energies changed, and my metrics changed in how I measured outcomes. Hmm. I see. So I, I think we a lot of times when we're helping people with their books, we talk about kind of like the four P's. So person, pain, promise, price. And when you, like when people are writing, a lot of times they'll struggle with their voice. And and it's, it's so funny. It's exactly what you said. It's, should I write this way or this way? Should I maybe be funny or should I be serious? And then oftentimes what ends up happening is, is exactly what you said. We just copy the style of our favorite author, or we copy the style of a recent author that we read their book that we, we, uh, that we really liked. And, and so we, we talk about, Hey, think about one person who's the one person that you know, that needs to read this book and then write it as if it's a letter to that person and your voice will emerge from that. So I think that's the who side that you yeah. spoke of, but then there's also, um, it sounds like for you, what you said is, is preceding that is the why. So why are you communicating this message? And, and then, so getting clear on that, and then coupling that with the who you're delivering it to, that way you can kind of customize exactly. the delivery based the on that. Best, Is that. The best communicators in the world, I think, Chandler, are that because they have a very strong why. This is true of the best organizations in the world. Mm-hmm. They are that because they have a very strong why, not a very strong what, who, where, and how. That's not their strength. That matters. Mm-hmm. But all of those things, all those logistical things that matter themselves um, are a mess when they're not driven by a one big clear why. And again, I want to say to all of our watchers and listeners, your why is not a product you're selling, as it were. It's a problem you're solving. And so, for instance, um, Airbnb's why is not accommodation. That's not what their why is. No more than Uber's why is cab rides, taxi rides. That's not their why. No more than Apple's why are devices, and so on and so on. What has made these companies become overnight massive organizations isn't their product. Other people offer what they offer. Mm-hmm. The difference is the why behind it. And, and Joe Geber, one of the co-founders of Airbnb, um, got into that space because he was late to a ball game in San Francisco. All the affordable accommodation had gone. The hotels were too expensive that were left. And so he was going to sleep in his car, but got to sleep on an inflatable mattress on the floor of some guy's house. And when he woke up the next morning, he thought, I wonder if people would pay for this, because I would. <laughs> And that's where the Airbnb idea came from. The air part of Airbnb was from the inflatable mattress. <laughs> I didn't know that. Because, and, that, and that's because entrepreneurs don't think in terms of selling something. Their why is, I had a problem last night. I had nowhere to stay. Mm. The problem was solved by sleeping on someone's floor. Could that be a business? Hmm. Is what he thought. So Airbnb's why isn't accommodation. It's empowering you to have an authentic experience anywhere in the world, living mm-hmm. in someone else's home. 
mm-hmm. and it's all done at the push of a button, as it were. My point is for our for those that are listening and watching that are wondering what there was, and what, and I spend a lot of time. You know, I'm a professional mentor and I do a lot of mentoring with individuals and companies about their why. Because finding your why is like giving birth to a child. It's like, oh my God, all of my life, I didn't know this. I've just been doing and achieving and producing and selling. And your why is like free falling into this effortless flow that changes everything after that. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's good. Um, what I, I know you work with a lot of people on this. What, what do you see as maybe the biggest pitfalls for folks who are searching for that and figuring out the whether it's the why for them as a whole or the why that they're writing this book, creating this talk, whatever? Like, but what are some of those big uh, pitfalls, and what would be maybe some tips for folks who are along that path of trying to find that? Um, probably the biggest pitfall is. Um, paying too much attention to your ego instead of tuning into your intuition. Your intuition knows what your why is. Your ego does not and doesn't care, doesn't want you to know. The intuition is intensely curious, which is what leads you home towards your why. The job of the ego is to prevent that happening because the intuition takes you to places the ego feels threatened by. So the first thing I think to do Mm -hmm. to find your why is to begin to be less governed by the protective nature of the ego and its false narratives that say, this is who you are. This is not what you are. Why are you reading that book? Why are you listening to that person? Why are you interested in that? This is not who we are. That's the ego. So you have to dial that down and dial up this intuitive sense the intuition isn't shouty it's not loud so you have to get still to hear it and when you get still long enough and practice that habit you'll connect with something else that's there that was always there you don't find your why you're born with it but from birth we're separated from the part of ourselves that knows that why and what we, what I'm saying to us is to get back to the why is you. And this is what I did when I was pastoring about getting still and getting uncoupled from all that stuff that was stopping me connecting with people. Is get still, tune into this still small voice, as the Bible calls it, the still small voice, this internal true north GPS guidance system that is shouted out by the chatter of the ego, and that still small voice that we all have from birth is where you'll find your why. And what I do as a mentor is help people to do that and then help people recognize that story you just told me, that's your why trying to talk to you. Because people don't spot it. I was saying to somebody the day mentoring that was telling me three or four stories random stories, and I help them to see the the events are random, but it's the same thing going on. It's your why trying to say to you, it's me trying to get your attention. Mm-hmm. It was five different situations, but it's one thing happening. Mm-hmm. And when they saw that, now they have the 
amazing superpower of spotting a pattern. Once you see a pattern, mm -hmm. you're the way to go. And the ego will prevent you from seeing patterns that are a breadcrumb trail, as it were, towards your why. The ego's speciality is shouting over the pattern so you don't <laughs> spot it. Once you get a pattern, you start to wake up more. Mm-hmm. Cool. I love that. That's great. Well, I've got a couple final questions and uh, we'll, we'll wrap up. We've got one from uh, a listener, Linda, um, about uh, some of the content of your book. So she, she says, um, could you share someone, um, could you share how someone who recognizes patterns of their own childhood trauma uh, in their parenting style can begin to make positive changes uh, according to your book? Start small, I would say. Start small. If you're aware that and it depends how deep we want to go with all of this for, for all of us. Um, I'm aware of this for, for everyone. And my empathy kicks in here with this question. You know, I wrote a book. You don't have to do that. The book was quite triggering for me, but I chose to go into that space anyway to make sure that I had done all that work necessary to put that aside for it to become helpful to others. Depends how deep we want to go with any of this what we feel is a repeat of history in our behaviors. Um, so I would say start small. The question itself to me is the beginning of your awareness. The question itself is, mm. it's saying, I think I'm an autopilot here. I think I'm repeating behavior I didn't like in my life and don't want to pass on. Good. That's you waking up. Good. Start small. What one thing can you do today? And this doesn't need to be anybody else needs to know, know about this, but you. What one thing can you do today that begins to deconstruct that narrative, that begins to consciously uncouple from the behavior that you are mindlessly adhering to? And it could be just something as simple as in a given moment, you change energies and you don't react angry. You don't react by lashing out. You don't react by being unkind. You pause and you do something different. And I've got to tell you, it doesn't feel grand. No one's going to applaud you. There's no <laughs> reward. That's why you don't think it counts. It counts. And if you will stack on that, if you will, if you will do what I call habit stacking, stack habits, small incremental things on top of other small incremental things, it becomes a game changer. So I would say to anybody, start mm. small and start really simple and journal it. Today, write down today, I caught myself about to press send on a WhatsApp message to that person that drives me nuts. <laughs> today, today, I didn't press send because I decided I no longer want to be part of the drama. Mm. Just that. No one needs to mm. know but you'll mm -hmm. know, start small. Mm, that's good. Start small, celebrate the wins when you when you do it. Um, great question, Linda. Guys, if you want uh, Thanks, to ask Linda. a question for a future um, guest, just comment on the YouTube channel with your question, or you can leave it uh, in a rating or review on the podcast, uh, and we'll pull in questions for future episodes. Um, Paul, where can, uh, where can people go? Uh, this has been awesome. Uh, where can people go uh, to find out more about you, to get your book, to find out more about speaking, working with you, all that good stuff? Social media. My social media address is Paul Scanlon UK 
or paulscanlon.com, simple as that, and you'll find what I'm up to. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to connect with whoever is out there and uh, wants to join the party that we're all involved in here. You know, because there's never been a time like this, I don't think, Chandler, where we that are waking up need to find each other. Waking up can be very lonely when you don't know anyone else that is or anyone else in your space or world or family is. When I woke up in my teenage years, I look back now, I had no help. I didn't know it was waking up then, but it was. Often waking up feels very awkward and others experience it as rude, disrespectful, because often waking up has a degree of defiance in it, like a hell no to what's kept you unconscious. So we need to find each other in the early stages of waking up. Otherwise, you will go back to sleep, and that would be a tragedy because all the life you are here to live is not possible until you wake up to your authentic self. So I hope people get in touch and not not to do anything with me that's like some you know, arrangement with me or pay for mentoring. I just mean anything that I put out is all coming from that why that I want to put out to people to help them to wake up. That's cool. Well, guys, uh, two things as we close, um, go to paulscanlon.com or check out uh, Paul on social. I think you said Paul Scanlon UK. Or secondly, um, if you're inspired by this, you want some help on your book, head on over to our site at selfpublishing.com forward slash talk. Book a call with the team. We'd love to help put together a plan uh, for you and for your book. Paul, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you. Thanks, Chandler. Lovely to see you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being here. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of the Self-Publishing School Podcast. I know there's so many places that you can be spending your time. There's other podcasts that you can be listening to, YouTube channels that you can be watching. Uh, so thank you so much. It means the world. Now, I want you to do three things right now if you found this episode. All right, number one, I don't know if you know this, but we've got a YouTube channel. It's a companion channel to this podcast. All the video versions of the episode are on the YouTube channel. So number one, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Number two, if you're listening to this podcast, wherever, whether this is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, number two, I want you to subscribe to this podcast right now so you don't miss a future episode. Uh, And then number three, this is probably the most important, uh, leave a review on the podcast. All right. Reviews are super important and help the podcast get discovered by other people. Uh, So number three, leave a review on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'll see you in the next episode. If you're on the fence about scheduling a publishing consultation call with my team, maybe you're not quite ready uh, for that, I've got some free training that I think will be really helpful for you. All right, all you have to do is go to register to sign up. Go to selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. When you do, you're also going to get a free digital copy of my new book, Published. And on that training, you're going to learn the next step, so how to implement with your book. So how to write, how to publish, how to launch successfully. So go to register right now at selfpublishing.com forward slash free training. I'll see you there.